And that should get your brain cells jiggling. That's the fuzzy logic intro music. Daft Punk, apparently I believe right that. My name is Rod, and thanks to Bruce for Irish Voice. And now today we've got a show in which we're going to invite audience participation. You can do this at home. Now what I want you to do is feel around the top of your forehead, just under your hairline there, and there's a little ridge. And yes, that's it. That's the edge of the cranial screw cap. What I want you up to do is to unscrew the cranium and scoop your brain out gently. Remember, it's a delicate organ. Put onto a plate in front of you, and we're going to examine what's going on inside there, right? So a large wooden spatula should do the trick. And if during the show you find uh, me losing the plot, it's possibly because uh, that my brain's on a plate and it's a little hard to operate properly when you're doing that. But uh, anyway, the brain has been described, I believe, as the most complicated two kilos. It is about two kilos, I think, isn't it? Give uh, or take, yeah. Yeah, of, uh, of substance known to man and woman. And uh, for your uh, fuzzy entertainment today, I am very pleased to say I have two neuroscientists in the studio, and I've been really looking forward to this. So welcome, Brendan O'Brien. G'day, Brendan. Hi, Rod. Thank you. And Mick... Cavazzini. thank you. <laughs> and you're both from the School of Psychology, the Department of Psychology from the Australian National University? That's where I'm from, Brian. And I'm coming from the John Curtin School of Medical Research, also at the ANU. Ah, okay. So we're going to be prizing into your grey matter today. And before that, we always do this on Fuzzy. We're going to do a little bit of This Day in Science, uh, big things that happened on this day. Percy Julian, born on the 11th of April 1899, was an African-American chemist whose patents included the synthesis of cortisone, hormones and other products from soybeans. <laughs> now, I, I was eating a lot of soybeans for a while, but I understand there's things in there called phytoestrogens, which uh, you probably don't want to have too many of. It probably is a... As a man, you probably don't want too many estrogens, but <laughs> might I be growing man boobs <laughs> as a result of that? Although this cortisone might have the opposite effect, keep keep the inflammation down. I suppose. Now I did I did pick this up because of the uh, chemical signals in the body. You see, that's and we're going to be talking about it in the brain later on. Hugo Munsterberg, born 11th of April 1863, a German-American psychologist, physiologist, and philosopher who interested in the applications of of psychology to law and also looked at, at the reliability of eyewitness testimony mm. which uh, now have you ever seen one of those little video clips where they say we want you to watch for this and then onto the scene walks a man in a gorilla suit mm. oh yes yeah. and you don't notice inattentional blindness yes there's actually a lot of research going on on that in the psychology department at ANU uh, now we're going to be talking about vision with your research later Brendan indeed uh, which is to do with the bionic eye indeed yes the moral of the story is what you what you th- you think you perceive is more often than not not what's actually going on in the world. Mm. Yeah. Actually, no, I have a first-hand experience of this because uh, I was at home one night a couple of years ago and I was brushing my teeth at about 10.30 and outside the window I could hear this bang. And I oh, that doesn't sound good. And I walked around the corner and there's a couple of drunks and they were really drunk and they um, skittled my neighbour's trailer parked in the, in the yard. And I'll save you all the detail, but... Um, I stood with these blokes and, and they were, well, it was police cars zooming around and everything like that. And then later on I saw one of them, but he was being interviewed, and he, but it was out of context. And I don't know whether, if that person had been in a witness lineup or a, a, what do you call it, a suspect lineup, I don't know that I would have reliably picked them. And I, mm. yet only 20 minutes earlier I'd seen them. No, that's happened to mm. me. You, you're, the, the, the tension of the moment completely affects the way you perceive it. And I was in, unable to actually recognise someone that had mugged $10 from me. Yeah? Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's a long story. <laughs> yeah. I think it's... I, I suspect it's got something to do with where, you, where your attention is going. Your, your, your intention is focused on something and you, by the very nature, eliminate things that are not of interest to you at that moment. Mm-hmm. Now, isn't actually... This, this happens in vision, doesn't it? Because isn't there a very narrow part of the field of vision that you actually see in any detail and that you'll mentally construct everything else around you? That's accurate. I mean, the area of the the, the eye called the fovea is essentially um, where the highest visual acuity is found, but it's a very, very small part of your eye, which is why most of the time you're making quite a lot of eye movements to try and get as much detail as possible out. 
But in order to do that, you have to be able to reconstruct all that bits of information together to give you your view of the world. And that, that gives a bit of a clue of the amount of processing going on because we're not really aware of it, are we? Indeed, yeah. I mean, even the, the estimates for uh, sort of the primate brain particularly are that it's dedicated almost 50% to visual processing. Wow, that's a lot. Um, and of course, we're very visual animals too, aren't we? Um, also, here's a anniversary, a double anniversary for Parkinson. James Parkinson was born on the 11th of April, 1755, and he was the English physician and amateur paleontologist. And he was the first to recognise burst appendix as a cause of death and wrote the first scientific article on appendicitis. <laughs> and by the way, I heard a, Dr. Carl give a really good description of uh, the man who took his own appendix out uh, whilst on a ship in the Antarctic. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, it's quite a remarkable thing. The, the bloke, like, he knows what's wrong with him. He knows he's got appendicitis, and he's lying on bed. He's a he's a, a surgeon, and there are no other medically trained people with him. And basically, he set up the mirrors. He told everybody what to expect and everything, and he uh, took him about an hour. He, he removed his own and appendix. And litres of rum. Uh, <laughs> no, he did... I think, I think he had a local anaesthetic, but I'm not <coughs> sure about that. But obviously you recognise the name uh, Parkinson and he wrote an essay what he, on what he called the shaking palsy in 1817. Yes. At first to describe the neuromuscular disease now known by its name of Parkinson's disease. So I picked that one up because of, for you guys. And the other Parkinson's anniversary is that in 1952 Parkinson's disease was successfully treated with surgery for the first time. Mm-hmm. A team led by Irving Cooper operate on the brain of a patient, and before the first general availability of L-Dopa in 1968, the treatment of Parkinson's disease stressed surgery. So an early procedure of choice was the, uh, I've got to say this word, pedunctolotomy, mm-hmm. yep. that <clears throat> uh, to reduce tumour. So while performing this procedure in 1952, he inadvertently interrupted the patient's anterior choroidal artery and was forced to ligate the artery and abort the procedure. Mm. <laughs> and then when the patient awoke, his tremor and rigidity had disappeared. Yeah. So it was one of those uh, uh, one of those serendipitous discoveries. Indeed, yeah. And uh, now this one here, an event in 1972. I like this one, and I picked it just because it's a good novelty. A smoking deterrent, a pseudo-cigarette package that uh, produces simulated coughing sounds when the package <laughs> was picked up with a US patent. It produced a simulated coughing noise from a battery-powered disc recording played through a miniature loudspeaker the package <laughs> when the package was moved. So that flew off the shelves, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Now, I reckon any story we could link to the brain, see now smoking and, and what goes on in the brain. Mm. Do, do you know anything about that? I mean, what, what the chemical signals Ooh, go on when, addiction's an with addiction? One. Yes. But there are chemical <laughs> things going on in the brain. Oh, most definitely. Addiction. Suffice yeah. to say that a lot of our behaviour, even non, non-addictive behaviour, behaviour where you're not consuming commonly addictive drugs and so on, just normal motivations that we have often release the same kind of... Uh, transmitters in the brain to to give you the incentive to perform those things. So. Right, ah. and when you add extra versions of those, such as by doing smoking for the nicotine, then the parts of your brain that are sensitive to the nicotine become a little bit less sensitive to that nicotine. So you need more and more and more to generate the same kind of enhanced arousal or whatever you're looking for from that. So do you think it's the nicotine itself or maybe it's some of the things that it triggers in turn? So there's... Um I don't know, some of the other brain chemicals that, that get excited here? Or is it such a complicated picture we wouldn't want to speculate? Certainly complex. Um, but the, 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 those commercials for that particular company that talks about the little guys jumping up and down in your brain when they get very angry when you try to stop smoking um, is not so far off from the truth in the sense that um, you're trying to, the brain now needs to be able to generate as much of the same stimulus you were using before, but now it can't any longer. So you need a while before your brain actually recovers from the uh, the addiction that you have at this stage. So does, does it strike you as interesting that a feeling, a sensation such as pleasure can be traced to a chemical? I mean, does it, <laughs> you know, something as mundane as a chemical and yet you have this feeling of euphoria or, or, or pleasant whatever it is well the the interesting thing is that the brain has these different chemicals these different neurotransmitters like uh, 
glutamate-like serotonin-like dopamine, which is the one that's often talked about in terms of addiction, which are important in distinguishing those types of sensations, but also the, the regions, of, as you've already alluded to, the regions in which they're expressed are important. So nicotine, not only does it stimulate centres involved in, in, in addiction, it also stimulates centres involved in uh, appetite and memory. So, so the same drugs that in one part of the brain cause that motivational behaviour, that addictive behaviour, in other parts of the brain are making, changing your appetite. Increase, nicotine is said to sometimes increase short-term memory because of its effects on a region called the hippocampus. So it's, it's not as black and white as, as one chemical oh. leads to one behaviour. It's all really tied in with when and where they're expressed. Oh, so a crude metaphor <coughs> might be if I were playing a very pleasant piece of music and there was a large audience out there, some people might just find it irritating, others might find it soothing, others might find it stimulating and so on. And that's a very rough metaphor, but are you saying that different parts of the brain will respond differently to the chemicals? Is that Certainly, yeah. That? yeah. What's interesting particularly about the nicotine, though, is that the, the cells in the brain that generate the same uh, sort of equivalent chemical are actually not very many of them, but they connect with almost the entire brain, which is pretty impressive, actually. Because the brain, as you were mentioning, is a two-kilo organ, and it's pretty big um, for a, a given little tiny cell to actually talk to everything else. is pretty amazing. Um, now, I've heard it said that uh, LSD uh, is such a powerful chemical in the brain that you need a, a really vanishingly small quantity of it to, uh, to have its effect. Oh, okay, now we're, we're just going to give you a quick quiz question here. So we all want you to uh, mull over these questions while, uh, while we're on through the show and use the spare capacity of that brain of yours. And uh, we'll give you the answers at the end of the show. So there's only three questions here. Let's keep it short. Uh, true or false, there are venomous mammals. So we always think of, and for our listeners overseas, we think of uh, Australia as being a good place for spiders and mm, uh, yeah. snakes and things, mm. but there's actually some venomous mammals, maybe. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Um, and here's one for you, Brendan. How old is the oldest cornea transplanted? The donor was born in this year. It was either 1885, 1909, or 1954. Mm. So we'll, we'll come back to that in the, the show. And this is... The last question is that apparently a trivial question which is actually quite interesting. Now, which of the following countries has the longest coastline? Is it Australia, Russia, Brazil or Canada? And I know my two guests here, you guys both know the answer to this one. So, okay, that's a really dumb question. How long is the coastline? But let's think about this for a moment. How would you measure a coastline? So let's just say in front of you you've got a map of a country, let's say it's Australia, and you get out your 12-inch ruler with 30 centimetres or whatever you have in metric world, and you, your own unit of measurement is the length of the ruler. So you place it at the top of the country, around the side, around the side, around the side, and you probably say, if I was measuring centimetres, uh, that I might end up with a measurement of, say, I don't know, 90 or 120 or something like that. Now let's say I'm going to use a shorter ruler, and I'm going to use half that. And now I can go into the indent. There's a bit of a, you know, at the top of Australia, there's Cape York. You know where I'm going. I can tell yes. by your, your, your nods. It's bring, bringing back horrid memories of high school calculus. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So uh, I'll leave you with this thought, but uh, if, you, if you follow my story further and further, and now we have a one-millimeter ruler, you can follow every tiny indentation around the country. And I've sort of imagined some poor schoolboy with his one-millimeter ruler walking round and round Australia, and his answer is not going to be whatever it was you did with the large ruler. It's going to be... And if you do that for an infinity, you could say... You could spend a lot of time measuring. Indeed. <laughs> I'm sure he's claiming he hasn't been paid enough either. I haven't done anything in my life, but I have measured the coastline. <laughs> So we'll come back to that at the end of the show. And uh, oh, also, before we go, uh, I'm going to break to track in a second. Check the Canberra Times today. Nisa Skilton, a fuzzy regular, uh, she's got a story about Twitter. And I mention that partly because Fuzzy Logic now has a Facebook page and I'm drag kicking and screaming into the modern age. So if you want to know what we've got coming up on the show, uh, you can Google to uh, Fuzzy Logic Facebook and uh, we'll tell you about that. This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show with me, Rod, Brendan and Mick. 
your science on a Sunday to Double X Community Radio, and we're talking matters brain now, Brendan. Which part of my brain do you think I'm using right now? Oh, quite a lot of it, I imagine, right, actually. Uh, um, Well, certainly most of the listeners will be using their auditory cortex uh, to be able to interpret the information that's being put out of their speakers from their their, uh, stereo systems. Uh, um, That's actually in a region of the brain known as the temporal cortex, and if you... The front of your temporal cortex is right on that part right behind your eye, uh, the temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it's where that sort of ends there. The temporal cortex itself, or the auditory cortex, um, is actually uh, a little bit further back than that. That's one area of the brain, of the particular the cortex, uh, um, which uh, is also quite involved, as Mick would be very well aware, of um, the hippocampus the area that's particularly playing a lot of uh, role in memory and learning, things along those lines. Uh, um, there's also uh, the reason that if you ever get hit in the back of your head, people say you see stars, is that most of your visual cortex is actually all back there. Uh, um, whereas uh, a lot of the processing that uh, you and I are doing right now, trying to actually generate speech for um, uh, talking about ideas or anything on those lines is actually done mostly in the frontal part of your brain, the frontal cortex. So we have what maybe a dozen of these cortexes, cortices. Or oh no, no, you have far more than that. Yeah. Actually, there was a. It's about. I think it's the century anniversary of this guy, Corbinian Brodmann's uh, original study of looking at the different areas of the brain, and he did it in a. Um, a very, I guess, objective way of doing it, which is to look at the the kinds of uh, histology, histological samples. So some have lots of cells, some have not so many cells. They have different patterns of cells. And when he did that, he came up with, I think, well over a hundred different areas of the brain, actually, which has since been suggested to have quite a lot of different functions. The remarkable thing is, though, that... <clears throat> Uh, while we share a large part of our brain with many other animal species, the, the cortex, which Brendan is alluding to, is is really only the top layer, the the, the top few you know centimeter, let's say, of tissue. And That's top, top as in surface. Top as yeah. in closest to your skull. Uh-huh. So the deeper regions, the, um, uh, the, the 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 regions that start from your spinal cord and then and then sit right in the center of your brain. A lot of those are shared with other mammals and and, and even reptiles and so on. But the the cortex is what makes us special, and it's it's the it's the the many areas of of this cortex that the Brendan's describing that which have been particularly more uh, diversified in 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 humans. Let's, let's yeah. So for instance, uh, an, another. Um animal might have, like say for your average rat, has a cortex, that's true, but it's actually quite flat. Whereas when um, anybody who's ever seen an image of a brain would notice that it immediately it looks really folded and there's all sorts of things kind of almost, I don't know, wormy kind of looking sitting on the top of the outside of the brain. And that's because the cortex has evolved so strongly that it ne- we need so much more of it to be able to carry out our daily lives that it has to have been compressed in somehow to fit inside that cranium we have. So it's a, a real exercise in biological miniaturization. That's yes. right. In fact, as we speak, we're prodding my brain on the dish here, and uh, I'm getting all sorts of weird sensations. <laughs> <laughs> so the cortexes are the parts of the surface of the brain, the, the deeply folded bits. Yes. And so we've got grey matter and white matter. Yeah. And the grey matter is the which? The grey matter is the cell bodies. Yeah. Uh, which when let's let's describe a few terms here. Yeah. Uh, a cell. There are many cells in your body. The brain cells, which we think of as doing all the interesting stuff, we call neurons. Um, and the cell body is the, the 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 fat bit of the cell that has all of the the guts of the cell. Let's say. Um, but then the cell is very highly branched. So if you, can, if you imagine a tree, a, a eucalyptus tree, the cell body would be sitting right underneath the trunk, just, just under the ground, and it's a, a round kind of swollen kind of balloon shape. But then the branch, the trunk of the tree and then the branches uh, are the bits that do the signal processing, the inputs and the outputs of the cell. And, and it, it, if you see a... a uh, a cell in a, in a tissue slice, they do really look like trees. They have the same main branches and then there are lots of finer and finer branches. And even when you get out to the, the, the thinnest branches, there's little tiny twigs that are only one micrometer in size that, that protrude, which, re- which receive 
all of the, the inputs from the other cells. And, and are those inputs, even at those micro levels, significant to the functioning of the cell? So it's it's like a bundle of cables, but uh, it's uh, like a tree structure cable, isn't yeah, it? So a, cable is a, good, a cable is a good uh, example because... Um, for a long for a long time, the neurons have been modelled as electrical cables. You can you can use the same calculations you use for an electrical circuit, talking about current and resistance and so on. You can use the same calculations to describe neurons and the the, the uh, transmission of electrical signals down those cables. And what the little tiny tiny bits on the end do is is they, they create little compartments, smaller and smaller compartments to do smaller and smaller calculations. Ah. So, so they are incredibly important. So w- what about the left and the right brain split? I hear, you know, the, the left brain, oh, I always get this mixed up. One is, you know, the more analytical and um, yeah, the other one's the more abstract. Uh, speech is, is centred on one side. In fact, I've heard of these weird experiments where the people have the... Um, is it corpus callosum? Yes, cut? that's correct, the corpus callosum. Callosum. And one half can't talk to the other, and they, and they feed a, a question into the left ear, and the right side processes it, but the, the, the speech side doesn't know it. Yeah. Oh, I'll probably get that muddle, but... Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, um, actually, there's quite a lot of been studied about that. I mean, um, some of what's been said is fluff, and some of what has been said is real, all right? Yeah. Uh, clearly, we have issues uh, about specialization of the hemispheres for language. Now, 90% of, of um, humans, your language is centered in your left hemisphere. All right. Um, so if you get whacked on the left side of your head, you might have some problems speaking for a little bit and then eventually come back to it. But uh, whereas your right hemisphere has some role there, particularly if um, in what's called prosody, which is the rhythm of speech. So if I start speaking a little more like this, right, then it's uh, an illustration that the right hemisphere is really about making sure that you make the pauses in the right place and that you continue to emphasize the appropriate syllables in words and things along those lines. Now, Sophia, yeah, go ahead, please. Oh, sorry. I'm just wondering, as you're talking about that reciprocity or that rhythm thing, I was hearing the other day that if you wanted to learn a block of text... You could read it, you know, I could read off my sheet of paper here, Google's page wrenching out, blah, 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 blah. But if I turn it into a piece of music and I sing it, then I have a much better chance of remembering it. Do you think that's related here? Really? I, I haven't heard that previously. It doesn't mean that it's not true. No, um, it, well, it does, sorry, <coughs> and Brendan, it does remind me of, the, you referred to Parkinson's disease earlier. So uh, oh, yeah. Parkinson manifests often as, as the inability to initiate actions because your, your motor cortex has to make a plan of action before it executes that. And that's the same is true with speech. And often these patients, and not just Parkinsonian patients, but other patients that have trouble initiating speech and the rhythm of speech, find it much easier to do when there's music, or uh, not just speech, but also action. When there's music and singing involved, it seems to link into some other... Uh, you know, rhythm generating part of the brain that, 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 that is unaffected by the disease and, and so they are able to sing or move along with the music. Now old, old timers will remember having to do our times tables and I can remember <laughs> in classes chanting, do you ever do this? One times one is one. Mm-hmm. One times two is, and well, so on. My own uh, upbringing in the US we had to learn uh, the state song. <laughs> right. So there were 50 US states of course while I was growing up and, and still to this day although some people would claim Puerto Rico is probably another state. But anyway, the main point here being that I'll never remember them if you try to get me to actually just say it. But if I can sing it, all right, then I'll actually do reasonably well. I can get most of them that way. I don't think we should go into that now. <laughs> um, but uh, We've got two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Alabama's the first. We'll start there. Uh, I think let's see. I think Wyoming is the last. And we're done. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, and I have diverted you, Brendan, uh, on that little uh, side alley there. We were talking about functional areas of the brain. So we've, oh, got, sure. we've got the cortexes, or, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's the brain stem, and there's other mm-hmm. areas. There's the deeper parts of the brain. Is that what you were getting, going to get hit Well, towards? that's where um, I actually wanted to briefly come back to uh, an interesting aside for the, the split brain patients, or what they were, and the people who actually have their corpus callosum cut. That's right. Now, 
the question here is sort of almost a philosophical question as to whether you have one brain or you have two brains. Because what's interesting about this is you were mentioning that if they, for instance, we have to put the, the speech centers in the left hemisphere now, right, for this patient. They have their corpus callosum cut, and usually that's done because of um, epileptic seizures that are uncontrollable for whatever reason. That's why it was done, and it, it helps them to maintain that stuff. All right, now, so the person has no communication between the two hemispheres any longer. So if we put information on the left side of the patient, all right, we'll say it says dog there or something along those lines. That information, because it crosses the brain until it gets to the right hemisphere, is where it's processed, all right? Mm -hmm. And, <clears throat> excuse me, if we put another word in the left sort of part of the world that they're looking at, then it will say cat, all right? And that goes to the left hemisphere. Now, if you pose a question to the brain, to the individual, an auditory question in this case, you're going to say, pick up the little plastic uh, item on the desk that is either the dog or the cat, and with your uh, left hand, all right? Now, that's going to be a problem because the information is going to come in to the left hemisphere, but in order to control your left hand, you have to actually use your right hemisphere, but there's no information going between the two any longer. So the patient has a really difficult time with this. And what's really interesting about it is if you ask them to pick up the, the item with their right hand, right? so this is the left hemisphere now, we've given that information dog, so they go to reach for the dog. The left hand, in some cases, will actually try to stop the right hand from actually doing what it's doing. Wow. So it, it had actually obtained some form of information, but it cannot express that information. So it's it's quite an interesting yeah, uh, I, paradox. This, this stuff just freaks me out. In fact, my little brain yeah. here is, <laughs> is quivering. And, and, I, and I have heard that um, you could ask somebody, give the person the instruction in the sort of way you described uh, to the non-verbal, uh, probably going to get this wrong, and then you ask the person to explain why they just did something. And mm -hmm. then they invent a reason to cover up the fact That's that the side of the brain correct. doesn't know why the other side did it. That's right. Yeah. Or, or as Brendan was alluding, you, they pick up an object with their left hand and they can feel what it is and they know intuitively what the object is. But because the left hand is connected to the non-verbal hemisphere of the brain, they can't express what that is. And then the, the, the behaviour that Brendan was describing with the left hand behaving independently from the right hand has the wonderful name of alien hand syndrome. And the alien hand seems to have its own consciousness, but then you have to ask, well, which one's the primary consciousness and which one's the secondary consciousness. And in fact, it can be said that constantly in the world, even in you know, normal human subjects, your consciousness really is only a flickering of attention. You, you alluded to that earlier. You're, you're constantly flickering around on the things you attend to, yeah. but then your brain's still processing a million other things in the background. And what we think of as consciousness, this beautiful, rich, you know, tapestry of information, is really only a sketch on the, sur you know, a scratch on the surface of all the things that are going on at once. And and you can break that up into, you know, into remarkable bits and pieces. And there's all sorts of I won't go into all the crazy visual disorders that occur when when you you really just affect tiny parts that yeah. control motion or color or. And for people to read Oliver Sacks' books, you know, you know his wife. Exactly. Man who took his wife for a hat. Yeah. <laughs> yes, thank you. That's the one. Yeah, I, I just find this is 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 amazing. Um, I, what I always find this curious. I mean, I've been long been aware of this left and right, and how the right side of your body feeds the left side of the brain, and vice versa. Oh, that seems really weird. Uh, do you, do we have any theories as to why this swap, switchover occurs? Is it? Uh, this is a very interesting one, actually, um, and it. It ties, oh, this is a big story, but I'm going to try and keep it short. It ties the lateralization of, so the, the pushing to one hemisphere of language. So as Brennan said, the language is concentrated in the left hemisphere. It ties this into the lateralization of hand use. So why are, are human beings dominantly in the right, using their right hand, which is also connected to the left hemisphere? And there's one theory that relates the um, so before we even had language, vocal language, there are parts of the brain that uh, recognise hand and mouth movements in other subjects. 
These are called mirror neurons. I don't know if they ring a bell to any of you. Yes, so... So mirror neurons, not only do they occupy a pre-motor region of the brain, which um, allows you, as you were saying, as I was saying before, to plan actions. So not only do we have to plan the action of reaching out and grabbing a piece of fruit, but we also have to plan the action of bringing that fruit to your mouth and making vocal uh, m- uh, oral gestures as you chew the apple. And it's, it seems that these have then become adapted to recognise those movements in other individuals and not just respond to the... The, the, the movement itself but to respond to the intention of the other individual so if you hide the goal of the other in, individual that's you know he's grabbing an apple but then you can't see what he does with it those neurons in your brain that are watching the other brain the, the, the other <laughs> individual can think what would I do if I was in that position so there's a theory of uh, of mind there of, of understanding the intention I, I will remember Watching a sports event at school, and there was doing they were doing the high jump, and I was standing on the edge of the oval watching my friend doing this the Fosby flop over the bar, <laughs> and I found myself lifting my right leg. What? That's exactly right. Yeah. And I'm going, and, and of course I wasn't jumping. I'm just standing there, going, oh, I hope no one spotted that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, look, I think we might have a, a a music break now, and this one will appropriately is uh, Cocaine by JJ Kale. And when we come back, we're going to talk about... Well, we talked a bit about neurons already, but we're just going to talk about uh, the bionic eye and some of your research, uh, Brendan, here on uh, Community Radio 2 with Rod, Brendan and Mick. So we're talking neuroscience, and my poor little brain is still quivering on the dish in front of me. I'm longing to get back into the comfort of my skull, but that will be the end of the show. And now, Brendan... We wanted to uh, talk to you particularly about uh, the bionic eye and all the people amongst uh, us listening to the show will remember, um, what was his face on the television, the $6 million man? Oh, indeed, <laughs> yes. Steve Austin. Steve Austin, that's him. Mm-hmm. So tell us, what have you been doing with this research? Oh, well, quite a lot, actually. Um, the, the focus of my lab is really trying to understand uh, visual processing, um, particularly at the level of your eye. And believe it or not, the part of your eye that actually is sensitive to light is really part of your brain. It's not actually some other weird organ. It's a part of your brain that um, developed originally from uh, the very beginning. That in itself has a lot of processing capacity and as a result it's a very complex kind of organ. The the way that it's built, it's built just like uh, Mick was talking about, is of neurons. Roughly speaking, uh, um, there's about 60 different types of neurons in there, and they're all talking to one another to try and actually give us our actual visual information. Some of that information is going to be about the form, so recognizing that you have an eye and a nose and a chin, etc., while I'm looking at you across the table. And those forms are essentially being processed there. In addition to that, the, your microphone uh, little cover has a little red fuzzy thing on it. Mine has a black fuzzy thing on it. So there are different parts of your, well, different kinds of networks in your retina that are able to process that information really in parallel. Oh, I was going to want to clarify there. So you, this is in the retina? or This is, is now in the, in the retina. Or yep, in the optic still. nerve or it's just in the retina? Nope, just in the retina so far. All right. That gets carried on in the optic nerve though. So the... The neurons that we're talking about, um, like Mick was talking about earlier, have uh, uh, inputs which are coming from one part of the cell, uh, an area called their dendrites, um, which I think is a root original from tree, actually, is what that is. <coughs> okay. Uh, um, and they also have an output. Now, that output is referred to as an axon. The axon of uh, these particular kinds of cells called ganglion cells for no other better reason than it's just what is used at the moment. These cells have axons that leave the eye via the optic nerve and then go and talk to other cells in other regions of the brain. And those channels I was talking about, these color channels and form channels and motion channels and all sorts of other types of information that we get from the visual world are all processed in parallel. So each one of those has its own sort of channel or uh, cable going into the brain. Now, the challenge, particularly for 
uh, the bionic eye is going to be able to try and reproduce the information that is normally going down those channels. And that's not an easy task at all. So uh, part of my own research and quite a lot of others around the world has demonstrated that there's at least 15 different channels that are involved here. All right. <coughs> Excuse me. The... Um, whether or not all of those we need to actually reproduce is another question. There's two particular ones uh, um, that are fed mostly to the visual cortex, and we refer to those as the conscious visual pathway. And those are the ones that we're really trying to target right now. But it's a very complicated sort of process, so we have to be able to um, decide what it is that the patient themselves actually needs. And this really depends on the kind of disease that they have as well. So, for instance, there are people, um, probably actually a fairly large proportion of the audience potentially, um, has what's called age-related macular degeneration, or ARMD, or just macular degeneration in sort of common parlance. These, um, this disease affects the area that you were referring to earlier, the area of your very highest visual acuity, the bit that you read with, uh, um, that you're trying to extract detail with. And that starts to degenerate um, in this particular area. It's referred to as the macula. It's a little bit bigger than the actual fovea itself, which is what I called it earlier. Now, um, when that degenerates, you have you lose your high acuity vision, but the area around that, your your eye is actually quite big, and you can see quite a lot of the world around 180 degrees around you, and they can still see to be able to sort of navigate their environment. So they're unlikely to get hit by a bus crossing the street. They're going to be able to recognize the bus is coming and that this is an intersection without too much difficulty. But if you just walk up to them, Rod, if it was your uh, colleague of yours who developed macular generation, without actually seeing any particular um, charismatic T-shirt that you particularly wear or something along those lines, they're not going to be able to recognize you until you actually speak to them, and they might be able to say, oh, it's Rod, because... I can recognize his voice, not because I can recognize his face anymore, which is what a lot of our own interpersonal recognition is being done with. And the context and so on. Exactly. Um, of course, and in your discussion there, I, you remind me that we're actually talking about people here exactly. and, and the, the variable quality of life and so on. So I am tempted to just go down all the purely technical path here, but that's yeah. a good sober reminder. <clears throat> But can we draw a metaphor here or analogy with the digital camera, since most of us know a little bit about those? So there's a chip on the back of the camera that the light falls onto and it fires, uh, whether it's a red, green or blue or whatever, at a certain voltage, and then the processing happens later on. But I think what you're telling us is that it's a lot more complicated than that. It's not just firing that cell in response to that photon. It's actually... Yeah, yeah, I might step in here because yeah. uh, the the camera, this camera chip is the, the is the easy part in a sense. The you know we've got many ways, many technologies now where we can capture the light. Um, but as you say, in a in a camera, it's all it's all coded down to a voltage signal or whatever. Yeah. Whereas uh, because there are all these overlapping uh, patterns of cells that de- decode different information in the retina, it's going to be really hard to to, to distribute the keep the keep the information separate, so keep the color information from the motion information, so that that can be fed to the right cells, and it's worth comparing it in um, to the the bionic ear, the cochlea that was also developed in this country, which was a remarkable feat when this happened. Um, but the thing that the the, the dif- differentiates the cochlea is that you're really only decoding one channel there. The cochlea looks like uh, and a snail shell, and if you uncurl it out, at one end of the cochlea, you've got cells that are decoding high-frequency noise, and uh, for high-frequency sounds, and at the other end, you've got cells that are decoding low frequencies, the bass tones. And so, in the when the bionic ear was developed, it was relatively, and I'm doing air quotes here, relatively <laughs> easy to insert uh, a long, you know, let's call it a, a wire with multiple electrodes down the length of that some and and then you've got around the ear you've got a um, a speaker that's picking up the sound in the world and it's sending the low frequencies to the electrodes down one end of the cochlea and it's sending the high frequencies to the electrodes down the other end of the cochlea so that when those electrodes let out some uh, voltage and stimulate the the 
ear cells right in the right spot, your brain just does the decoding on one channel. Your so brain knows already what to do with that information. So that's a little bit more close to the camera analogy where it's just firing right. at, at a certain stimulus and it's already mm. sorted as it goes down the, down the cochlea. What gives us some hope, though, is that when you think of the auditory nerve, it's actually, you know, got thousands of refined points where it can send that information, whereas when we do it artificially with the bionic ear, you can, you can insert only 20 different electrodes over, the, over that length as opposed to the thousands that the brain's doing it with. And the, bra- and the brain is still able to decode that very rough signal that it's getting into and make sense of it it can still you know people with bionic ears can still decode speech they can the 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 the, the incredibly refined sounds that you're hearing can be just broken up into say 20 or so signals in the cochlea that then the brain is able to put back together into into a real uh, understandable signal right. so so Brendan in your research are you Putting micro wire—I mean, or you or, or your colleagues—putting micro wires into the retina to stimulate them in yep. some way—is that what's going on? And in part of this is the um, there are two different kinds of stimulators that are going to be generated. One, of, both of which are based on electrical stimulation of the retina. One of which is for these people with age-related macular degeneration, which has a very high-density array. <clears throat> of uh, individual electrodes. But to give you context about this, um, the area of your retina that's the highest visual uh, acuity is really um, a a fair number of the cells that actually connect to the rest of the brain. Um, You can think about this as that there's about a million axons leaving one eye, so a million individual wires uh, encoding about space in uh, and color and everything else. About 800,000 of them are most definitely involved with space, trying to figure out where things are, and most of those are in that little area called the macula. Um, those That particular electrode array is going to try and stimulate very closely uh, on that particular region to give these people with macular degeneration the ability to be able to recognize faces and objects uh, um, back again. The, there's another implant that's actually being developed as well simultaneously because there are other patients, um, some of which are referred to as retinitis pigmentosa. Now, these people develop uh, as they uh, get older, or sorry, actually, are younger generally when they, the onset of the disease in their 20s or 30s. And as the, the disease develops, develop very, very fine tunnel vision to the point if you're looking very through your, you know, curling your finger around and looking through that, trying to understand uh, um, being able to see anything, all right? Because you're still using your central vision, you can recognize people's faces, but these individuals are going to have a much harder time not getting hit by the bus, all right, because they don't see that it's coming. If you can hear that it's coming, that's fine, that's all right. um, But... Being able to navigate a room, for instance, that you've never been in before without barking your shin on the coffee table, things along those lines are uh, the challenges that are faced by people with retinitis pigmentosa. And as a result, the other array that is being developed, mostly by the folks at UNSW, is a very wide field array with very large electrodes. But the problem, as Mick referred to, is that with a very large electrode, even these little ones, and you're going to have a very difficult time making sure that you have activated the right kinds of cells. And that is where my lab is actually trying to figure out the, the software version of this. So the two lab, a lot of the work is being done um, in at least three different places in Sydney and in Melbourne and here and uh, in Canberra. Now, um, a lot of the hardware being stuff is being done in Sydney and Melbourne, and a lot of the software stuff is really being done by us. How is it that we're going to program the bionic eye so that it gives us the right information down the right channel at the right time? Uh, and that's mostly what we're trying to do here. Uh, okay, so it's a logical model, if you like, of, of the functioning of those components. How, how far off do you think we are before we see some usable uh, product? Well, actually, that's quite interesting. So... Uh, um, the original statement was that there would be a commercially available bionic eye by the 2013. 
right, that was actually going to be implanted. Uh, um, the first implants, is my understanding, are going to happen sometime either this year or next year, actually. And these are going to be very, very basic ones to be able to demonstrate that the, the, um, the implant actually does work, all right? Um, because these particular designs have been developed um, over well, at least the last decade at this stage, trying to actually get the numbers of wires involved and the 98 electrode array that currently exists uh, um, to be able to appropriately get information. But because we have not actually implanted that in a human patient yet, we simply don't know what kind of information we're going to get out. Now, um, and this is actually the way that the cochlear, uh, the bionic ear, was developed as well. They developed a, a very early implant that was very safe. We knew that it was going to go in there and be able to um, go in there and uh, not damage what is already still in existence. Now, um, but it was looked at as a way of getting some kind of information about how do we, does the program that Brendan developed in his lab here at ANU actually work to get the percept that we want out of the patient? And once we have that information, then it's simply a matter of scaling it to the right appropriate size and that sort of stuff. So, It's worth pointing out also that, it, uh, you know, so Brendan's talking about the very first stages of this implantation. Even when we will have a very, very elaborate uh, bionic eye to implant, it probably won't be the case that the, the, the patient will wake up after surgery and suddenly have all this visual richness. It's going to be a case of training the brain because l let's say that when they do first open their eyes, they're just going to see a jumble of stimuli of light, flashing lights that they really can't make sense of. And the amazing thing is the brain will be able to relearn what to do with that information. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be the information that you're born with, that you develop as a child. It's going to be a very different type of information that the brain, the visual cortex now, is going to be able to piece together into what makes sense and what it's expecting about the world and what's going to be useful to it, mm. to its behaviour. So, And the people who've had their leg or arm in a cast in a trivial way could probably get the feeling like a friend at work has just had knee reconstruction and he's telling me that the surgeon said you've lost the muscle memory, as he put it. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to have to learn again how to, re how to use that knee, exactly. how, to, how to use that leg. Mm -hmm. This is a lot about uh, the plasticity of the brain particularly, which is a very uh, useful <laughs> element of the way that the brain actually works. It's true, certainly, of the bionic ear. Uh, um, the patients who get the, go in when it gets turned on for the very first time after, I don't know, several weeks after it's been implanted, have to relearn how to recognize language and sound of any sort. Um, and that takes a while. It doesn't take just not turning it on and actually seeing what's going on. Um, and hearing immediately that it's it's Rod's voice across over there and Mick next to me, um, the the bionic eye I think was probably going to have a very similar challenge to those uh, sorts of problems that we have. Right. Well, <laughs> we've barely touched the surface. So I could just feel there's so many things for us to talk about, and I really want to get you guys back on Fuzzy Logic again sometime. Uh, and I'm sorry, but uh, we've actually. <laughs> Our brains have now emptied. Uh, I'm going to have to uh, scoop mine back up and put it back in. Please don't forget to do that at home because um, it's not good to leave it sitting in a dish for too long. Um, now, we podcast this show to a website called uh, Podbean, bean as in the green thing, uh, podbean.com, and it's fuzzy logic on podbean.com, so you can pick it up. And uh, coming up on Fuzzy Logic, we've got uh, Brad Updike, who is a paleoclimatologist. We had him on before. He's fantastic. And uh, Richard Stazeka's new book, Out of the Scientist's Garden, is a fabulous read. I'm, I'm about halfway through at the moment in the bookshops. I'd highly recommend it. He's going to be coming on on the 2nd of May, so tune in for that. And also now I have a professor uh, visiting from the U.S., a professor of planetary uh, astronomy. He's coming on uh, in June. And uh, before we go, we all sit in there and uh, listen to your rage, wondering when we're going to give you the answer to those quiz questions. So here we go. True or false, there are venomous mammals. Australians all know this one. And the answer indeed. is? I'm going to say yes. Yes, the indeed. Platypus, no? Yes, of course, the platypus. <laughs> and there is one other, the Hyacian solenodon, paradoxus, delivers poison <laughs> from glands under its front teeth to paralyse beetles and small animals. Huh? There we go. Neurotoxins, I guess. Uh, this this one, you didn't know this one. Uh, 
he says smugly. How old is the oldest cornea transplanted? The born, the donor born in either 1885, 1909, or 1959. You want to have a guess? I have not a clue, Rod. It's it's surprising. Uh, a 120. Four-year-old cornea was transplanted into a Norwegian man in 1958. So it was 124 years wow. old. So the the donor was, uh, I guess that means 1885. Mm. How about that? And the longest coastline, well, that's obvious, is Canada. Well, thank you guys. It's been a blast talking to you, and uh, we'll definitely want to get you back on the show again here on Fuzzy Logic. Well, thank thank you. you so much, Rod. It was a great pleasure. And uh, we'll take you out with some random piece of music. Uh, Ever Longing by Moby. Here we go. Join in next week. We've got uh, Broderick and the crew coming in. They're going to be talking about the science of the new, new gadgets, new ideas, and new stuff. See you then. Bye. <laughs>